As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saras here with you. It's Wednesday, July 21st, as you can see in that single shot at the very beginning of the video. If you're watching on YouTube, moving is progressing. There are boxes everywhere. There's almost nothing left on my walls. The picture over my shoulder of the old baseball cards from uh, the Burdick Collection that's the only thing left on the walls in the entire apartment, just to add a pop of color to the videos that I'm doing. <laughs> and and I see you were drinking your cellar, so you don't have to move a bunch of bottles. <laughs> it's such a, a, a great technique. It's the last thing you really want to do is drink all of your booziest, heaviest beers while trying <laughs> while to pack and like get your life together and trying to like solve problems every day. Like, where am I going to sleep on this day when I'm in between these two cities? And where where might I? <laughs> I, I know it'll gas. help. Uh, 15% stout. <laughs> yes, that'll, that'll, that'll clear my head for me. <laughs> but you know what? There was a, a celebration for me. Uh, I am a Milwaukee Bucks fan. I mentioned this in the last episode. I'm a bandwagon Bucks fan. Hardcore back in the day when I was in high school and college. Less so the last couple of years, but Giannis is those must the see Eric TV. Eric Snow years? Yes. Yeah, like yes. back back around then. Yeah, I mean the the Ray Allen Glenn Robinson uh, team oh, that got knocked man. out by the the Iverson Sixers. That that team broke my heart. And then when they traded Ray Allen for Sam Cassell, that was the end for me. That was mm. that was when I I couldn't bear to watch anymore. Ah, Glenn Robinson. That's right. I remember those years. It was a it was a interesting game. Pretty ugly up front. Oh, man. Uh, but that sort of played into the Bucks' hands, I think, because in terms of um, who you could turn to when the defense, uh, when the when the refs are allowing fouls and the defense uh, is stout, uh, Giannis is up there in sort of Shackian uh, way that he can he can get you a bucket, you know, like he can he can just you know back his guy down and turn around and he was he had that like four foot hook going, and once he if he has that going then you've got a beast and you just got to wait till the other guy's shots start falling and that's that's basically what happened i think yeah not a lot of answers uh, for Giannis in that series he was incredible obviously the finals mvp and even if you're not even like a like a basketball fan all season that was a fun series to watch i was hearing that from a lot of people who don't even watch that much basketball they were really enjoying what unfolded so i was excited to get to watch the game with my wife and my in-laws they've been helping us pack so we had a celebratory mug coffee mug literally coffee mug full of the central water sorry the glasses are packed glasses are packed the maple <laughs> bourbon stout special beer really good uh, special occasion beer but uh i was like well it'll taste pretty good out of a mug you'll smell it really good and it, it actually That's worked right. out great so uh, points for being resourceful. Uh, on this episode, we will discuss the extension given to Lance Lynn by the White Sox. Brandon Marsh has been promoted by the Angels. We saw Josiah Gray debut for the Dodgers, and we've got a few more questions to get to from the mailbag as well. So let's get to it with Lance Lynn. Details of the extension, two years, $38 million with the White Sox club option for 2024. That would cover his age 35 and 36 seasons, age 37 in 2024, if they end up picking up that option. 
And I thought we should try a little Lance Lynn trivia because I have been destroyed by Lance Lynn trivia in the past. There was a game once upon a time called Lance Lynn or Jake Arietta, and it happened on our podcast Step Right Up, which was a game show podcast we had two years ago. So if anyone out there remembers that, drop a note in the comments or hit me with a tweet because that was like one of the very first podcasts we launched. And unfortunately, we didn't continue that one, even though it was a lot of fun to make it. So Lance Lynn, you know, since 2019... Minimum 200 innings for everybody in this group. Uh, the, the group includes 100 more or more than 100 qualified pitchers. Where does Lance Lynn rank in innings since the start of 2019? I'm going with first. He's fifth. So, yeah, he's near oh. the top of the leaderboard. 390 innings for Lance Lynn. How about ERA? Wait, can I do any of the innings ahead of him? You, know, you want to name the guys ahead of him? Sure. Is you Darvish on there? I got to pull up that leaderboard. Who else do you think is on there? <laughs> Darvish is one you think is on there. Um, not hurt. Not hurt. Darvish is not. Darvish is 365 and a third, so about 25 Barrios? less. No, Brios is close, 378. <sighs> Why am I not thinking? I think the not hurt thing is just a weird one. It's like Gossman? I, no, I think... And he just started getting hurt. This group is pretty much the guy. There's only one guy in this group that I think is a surprise. Of the of the four ahead of him, only one is a surprise. Not hurt. Uh, it says it's not hurt is not a thing that like stands out in my head. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I and then a lot of the guys where I'm like, oh, Marco Gonzalez, but uh, he was hurt this year. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this not coming to me? Kyle Gibson? No, no, you're yeah. you're overthinking it. I'm overthinking it. Yeah. Garrett Cole's number one. Oh, duh. And God, the, the guy after duh. him is just like the king of the rubber arm. That This guy's going to pitch forever if he wants to. He probably doesn't want to, but he could. Uh, I don't know why. Grinky. Oh, yeah. Grinky. Duh. Yeah. God. I'm so bad at trivia. I'm really, really bad at it. it All right, it, so just tell me the rest. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's Cole, Grinky, Bauer, and Zach Wheeler are the four. That uh, I see, I was going to say Bauer, but I just felt like uh, maybe this recent thing had, had knocked him off. And then Wheeler is interesting because he, he's been hurt. He just hasn't been hurt recently. <laughs> right, he's held it together in the last couple of seasons. So yeah, just to see him on that list. But Lance Lynn, obviously very durable, provides plenty of innings. Where do you think he ranks in ERA? During the same span, I go with like tenth. Yeah, very close. Thirteenth, three sixteen ERA during that span. How about WHIP? Hmm, smaller. Uh, right, I think, but I'm not looking at this page, so I'm gonna go like fourth, twenty twenty fifth, twenty fifth. Smaller. I, I good... thought you meant the other direction. I thought you meant like a little. No, worse. he doesn't have a good. Uh, he doesn't have a good. Uh, uh, WHIP one fourteen. It's not bad. Oh. It's hard to believe they're actually that's tied for 25th. There's that many Jesus. guys that have been better than that in whip with 200 innings over the last three seasons. A K minus BB percentage. This one's your sweet spot. Um, well, is it, I don't think it's actually uh, elite because there are guys with with higher strikeout rates. I like that you're sleuthing this out. Huh? You're sleuthing this out. I like it. Uh, but I think better than, than whip. So I'm going to go like, uh, 17th. Yeah. Tied for 21st. So I think you're, that, that'd yeah, be a ding, ding, ding. I think that's pretty close. 20.3%. And then finally strikeout total during this span. Oh, but that's like basically another innings question. Does yes. he have more strikeouts than Granky? Yes. So I'm going to give him like third. Ninth in strikeouts. Nine. There's some sick strikeout rates out there. So Oh, because somebody like a glass now could pitch fewer innings but have like fifteen K per nine. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. But it gives you an idea, right? I mean, fifth in innings, thirteenth in ERA, ninth in strikeouts, twenty fifth in whip, and even twenty first in K minus B percentage. Lance Lynn is a better pitcher than we thought he was when he went to Texas a few years ago. The question I have for you is how has he done it? What has changed about him? On the wrong side of thirty, no less, how has he made adjustments and reinvented himself to become a guy that would get a, a multi-year extension before his deal runs out at this stage of his career. 
Well, it's really interesting. I was just talking to Alex Fast uh, from Pitcher List about pitching development. He's got a couple pieces coming out about that, about team-by-team looks at pitching development. And, um, you know, the Rangers may not have done a good job make like producing pitchers <laughs> like in terms of like homegrown pitchers uh we're looking back to like Derek Holland mm-hmm. and Alexio Gondo is the last time they kind of developed in in-house like starting pitching uh and yet at the same time they've been pretty good at taking veterans so I think their major league pitching coaching has been okay because they took some veterans like Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn and made them better and at the at the All Star game, Lance Lynn said that Texas just had him basically uh, go for more strikeouts by uh, throwing the four seam more than uh, the sinker, and that the Cardinals had been all about the sinker. Um, and it, it, it's it, you know I did, had a piece about the adjustments that made the All Stars, and it's pretty remarkable. If you graph his sinker usage against his K, his K percentage, they just they are they're inverted. So it's a, it, that was a very clear relationship. Um, but then I asked him, uh, like, how many fastballs do you have, dude? <laughs> uh, because normally people think there's only like sort of three fastballs, maybe four. And I think you have at least four. And he's like, yeah, you know, I've got the uh, a, a two seam, a true sinker, a four seam and a cut. And then he said, and the Granky does this too. Um, I have a nice and easy one. So he has some sort of batting practice fastball that he throws. Um and so then I was like, well, doesn't that put a lot of com- uh, pressure on your command? Because if you're just throwing fastballs out there, uh, you're not changing the speeds that much. So it seems, it seems like you really have to place those pitches. And he said something that uh, was very interesting to me that I I haven't studied enough of. And I've, it's been interesting to me in the background. He said, yeah, but if they know a fastball is coming, they're in swing mode. Hmm. Um, and... It's something like Adam Ordovino once said, like, you know, when I first came up, everyone said, oh, you got to be aggressive against Adam Ordovino because you don't want him to get to the counts where he can just put that slider on the outside corner or, or past the outside corner. So you got to be aggressive. You got to swing up there. You got to try and get a fastball. And he said that Ordovino used that to his advantage. Um, but then Ordovino said that one one year he had some trouble with command early on and the the mode changed and the pitcher, the batters came to the plate saying, I gotta make him throw a strike. I'm gonna wait for a strike, and that was the, the, the really bad year that Adovino had. So you know, swing rate matters, and it's not something that we talk about a lot in pitching. And you know, when I looked at the I look at the major league leaderboards this year for swing rate, uh, it's I think it's uh, kind of telling. Number one is Cole Irvin, um, uh, on the on the Athletics who who does not have great stuff numbers, but he does have good command numbers and has a bunch of pitches. And next is Tyler Anderson uh, of, of Pittsburgh, which is, you know, somewhat similar. Um, on that list also is Urias and Manaya, uh, Wheeler, Kershaw, Jordan Montgomery, Kyle Hendricks, and of course, Lance Lynn, uh, Nola and Scherzer are on there too. I would describe all those guys as having great command. So, Sort of of the top twenty-five, I would say more than half have uh, have upper-level command, um, and so I think that's that's what command can do for you is get the batters in swing mode, and so therefore uh, you can get them to reach more. All these guys have above-average reach rates, um, and that means they're swinging at balls and turning them into strikes, which is huge for a pitcher. Uh, but it just also means that you're getting them, you're getting the hitter to be aggressive, and you can turn that to your advantage. Because there are guys like Rodon and Giolito on here too, who are not big command guys, uh, but uh, I don't know, throw their fastballs enough in the zone, somehow have gotten batters into swing mode. Um, so I just think that was a funny, a little interesting side thing, and uh, Lynn and I had uh, a fun back and forth about about pitching and what it takes and he's basically saying if you got him in swing mode and your fastballs all move a little bit differently at the end um you could really take advantage of that did you get to talk to anybody else uh, like at length about pitching while you're at the all-star game and it's a good opportunity to get to speak to so many players all at once if you catch the right people in the right spots yeah it's funny because for the most part i was asking my one question 
and piecing out. And um, you kind of are at these like media tables where uh, local media kind of uh, with the sharp elbows, elbows you out of the way, especially the, the radio and TV. They have these like boom mics and you'll just be standing there, sitting there waiting patiently. And all of a sudden there's like a boom mic that goes right by your face. And then an anchor who's standing next to them being like, hello, you know, is it OK if I just ask a couple questions? Uh, no, actually, I've been sitting here for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, please get out of my face and let me ask this question. Um, but uh, the two that I had, I wouldn't say like super lengthy. Sometimes you can write a piece off of five minutes with a person. That's a sort of dirty little insider secret. Uh, but uh, I had uh, that sort of spark with was Lynn, uh, where I just got a couple moments with him alone. I think he appreciated the fastball question. Uh, and the swing mode thing was really interesting. And we kind of had a back and forth where he was kind of smiling and like, um, it was something maybe different than he'd been asked about like Shohei Otani and how good the White Sox will be like a million times. Um, and then the other one was Brandon Woodruff, who, uh, I would never, I don't think I'd ever spoken to before. So I, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. And so when I asked him about his major adjustment, he talked about, you know, throwing, uh, weighted balls and how that helped him. Um, not necessarily change his max velocity because he said at Mississippi State he was able to touch the same velocities that he touches now. Uh, but he said that it was better at changing his sitting velocity, which I think is uh, sort of a, a misunderstood thing about weighted balls. I don't think they're as, they're great. Like it, if you throw ninety three now, especially as an adult, if you throw ninety, maybe as a younger as a younger person you can develop uh, max velo. But if you're sort of an adult and you throw you max out at ninety four, weighted balls will help you sit. 92 93 instead of 89 uh they they won't they won't necessarily change your max below uh not not for most people so uh he said he could sit he, he could sit now he can sit at 94 95 and 96 because of the weighted balls but this is something so i've heard that weighted balls change your arm path and it's because um in the back if you if you're if you've got the ball um it's and it's heavier then your then your body is just going to organize differently because it's like oh this is heavier like I'm not going to do this big old you know roundhouse thing in the back um, you know big old swinging arm path because that's like a strain on my arm I'm just going to pick this ball up uh, and throw it because it's heavy um, and so that that shorter arm path I've heard people complain about it around the around baseball oh that's the drive line arm path you know the Giolito uh the the Indians the Plesac and all those guys that's the drive line arm path um I don't know I I I don't think it it, it causes injury or anything I don't think that every player uh needs to have the same arm path in the back I don't know that it has uh the same benefits for everybody but Woodruff said it had this interesting side benefit of um, making his breaking ball better, mm. um, and he had this thing where uh, he 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 said he was a uh, a changeup pitcher uh, coming out of uh, of Mississippi State, and that he was always better at sort of um, being behind the like sort of being like like when you land like being a little bit later, his arm coming through a little bit later. Because if you're breaking balls, you kind of want to release out in front. You kind of want to, like, when you're when you're releasing the ball, you kind of want to stand. You want to be released out in front. But uh, uh, change-ups, you kind of, it's okay to be later on because you're kind of coming through like this. Um, you're kind of pronating. So uh, he said that uh, by cleaning up his arm path in the back, he was able to throw uh, better sliders. Because he was then, uh, with the same delivery, able to get out in front quicker with his arm. Because he was spending less time in the back. Uh, with his arm, um, and so he said his slider got a lot better uh, with break with the with the weighted balls, which is not something that happens for everyone, but it happened for him with his unique mechanics. Uh, interestingly, all of his pitches rate uh, as above average by Stuff Plus, but his slider now uh, rates as his very best pitch. Um, so we had this sort of uh, this is a weird word giggling. <laughs> Uh, interaction <laughs> where we kept passing it off to each other about uh, rotational energy and about timing and about what you want, where you want your hand to be at footfall and where you want to release breaking balls and change ups. And um, I was at the end of it, I was like, dude, I got, I got, I got to, I got to go talk to other people. 
<laughs> I would rather just stay here with you for a while, but I got to go talk to other people. So Woodruff is now uh, high up on my uh, favorite pitchers list. Nice. Well, hey, you, always was. Yeah, you had him pretty high before. So uh, yeah. curious to favorite see how high he goes. To, I guess. Well, that's, that's that's really cool, and I think the the weighted ball. I guess cleaning up mechanics just in general, it, it does make a lot of sense because if you have to control all of your body to not hurt your arm, you're going to work on being more stable, being more balanced, maybe having a better core. And all of those things are going to probably become more consistent over time. And then you take the weight away. And of course, you still can repeat those mechanics more easily because it's like a muscle memory sort of thing. You're training in a way that, that gets you into that, that sequence and gets you out of some bad patterns so a really interesting benefit there that yeah like maybe the, the main reason you do it is you think oh, i'm just gonna throw harder well why do you throw harder well it's because your mechanics are better and more consistent and the command is more consistent too that might be the uh, hidden benefit of the weighted balls for some people they might just think i'm gonna get i'm gonna get a couple ticks like well, yeah i'm also gonna get better command that's uh the trade worth yeah, making. it's certainly possible I, I i i i have had someone push back on that a neuro scientist that worked with a major league team came up to me after a panel at uh, Sabre Analytics and said that uh, the neural pathways that you use to organize, uh, to throw and command a larger object are different than the ones that you use to to command a lighter or smaller object, which makes sense. If, If I asked you to try and throw a boulder at a certain thing you would be using completely different muscles and you know just to put it at the exaggerated level uh then then if i asked you to throw a dart you know it's yeah. just completely different uh in, in terms of muscles but also uh, apparently in terms of neural pathways so um it sounds plausible but i would say that that's on the extremes and uh I'm, i'd be a little bit surprised if the neural pathways for throwing like a six ounce ball versus a four ounce ball really that different. They shouldn't be that different. I, they're like they're the same shape too. It's not like a dart versus a boulder either. It's like these are both balls. There are two people that live in my home. Uh, one of them studies the brain, and I am not that person. So perhaps I will. Perhaps I will consult. Ask her if she thinks it's plausible. Consult Mrs. Van Riper on this one because this is absolutely her wheelhouse, and certainly not mine. Let's get to a Brandon Marsh. He has been promoted by the Angels, and Marsh is a pretty interesting player because I think there's been developing power. I think it's one of those things that scouts have pointed to for a while that they expect him to get to more game power than. He's probably shown us at just about every minor league stop so far. Uh, a true center fielder, like a guy that will stick in center field for a long time. He runs well. He's got a pretty good arm. So, you know, he's, he's going to be defensively playing because he's going to play because of his defense for a long time. How good he is as a hitter. I remember seeing him out and left. My God, is he shaggy. Really reminded me of Jason Worth out there in just terms of all that hair. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's good to have a few more guys like that out there. Oh, he was in center field. Interesting. Three in a row in center. They got Taylor Ward out there. Did Taylor Ward grow a beard? <laughs> no, I think he must have just made a catch in left field when I was watching or something. Covering left field for, uh, yeah. for Taylor Ward. So Marsh is interesting because I think there's at least a, a great playing time floor because of the defense as a hitter he's been good pretty much everywhere he's played he's been at least an average hitter at every single stop and he's flashed being an above average player he's stolen some bases uh, the projections point to a 240 312 384 player the rest of the season that's according to the bat x like that that almost seems a little too low even though i think there are some concerns about marsh's strikeout rate in the short term yeah i guess uh reaching back into uh sort of 2017 to 2019, he didn't really show exemplary power. Uh, and he hit a lot of ground balls. Um, and even this year in AAA, he hit a fair amount of ground balls. So I guess the there is some question about his attack angle and uh, what sort of uh, power he'll produce, which is why they... Uh, actually, Bad X is the, the happiest and most optimistic about his power, giving him 144 ISO. Everyone else is below that. Um, but I don't know. We saw him play. What year is that? 2019? I think it was 2019 fall. AFL? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was pretty impressed with his athleticism, and he's a big guy. Uh, so I think it'd be weird for him to have league average power. Uh, he's also had some better results this year in terms of power, 213 ISO and AAA. Um, and uh, that was his first time with the sort of major league ball in AAA. Um, so it could be that the ball helps him, uh, produce a little bit more, uh, uh, offense at the major league level. In any case, I think the power projections are, uh, low and it's possible that the strikeout projections are high because if you look at his swinging strike numbers, they've never been high. He's actually been very good at making contact. I would assume looking at his walk rates that some of his strikeout rates have come from patience. So if he's more aggressive on the major league level, uh, you could see a smaller strikeout rate. And he certainly hasn't hit the ground uh, with a ton of strikeouts. So if the power is low and the strikeouts are high, I think we're looking at a guy who could be more likely to hit uh, 250 or 260 uh, with like a 330 on base percentage. Definitely a slugging percentage over 400 for me. Uh, Type of guy who in a full season... Uh, could maybe do uh, 2015, 2010, in terms of 20 homers and 10 stolen bases, at least. I think that that's definitely in him. Yeah, I just think maybe we get some bumps along the way in the second half from this particular profile. They Waiting it out too long against big league pitchers will be even more costly than being perhaps too patient in the minors. But again, a, a nice player all around, a guy that certainly fits for them. Uh, no Joe Adele yet, and Adele has pushed his overall numbers at AAA uh, to the point where he's got a 112 WRC+. plus. The K rate is under 30%. Uh, so that's an improvement from his first stop at the level back in 2019. Gives you a glimmer <laughs> of hope that when he comes up, that maybe he can keep his K rate kind of in the, the low 30% range. Uh, Dell has 19 homers and 7 stolen bases. Call him up, man. But just in comparison... Adele has had swing strike rates almost twice as high at, as Brandon Marsh at every level. So I don't I don't anticipate anything better than a 30% strikeout rate for Adele when he comes up. Yeah, and I think that I guess the other takeaway with Brandon Marsh for me, you know, is that it just seems kind of like the the scouting community, the people who can analyze minor leaguers with their eyes and, and kind of project on that like they seem to be generally pretty high on him and what he's going to be able to do as all the pieces come together whereas when you number scout him you kind of like frankenstein and everything together and it looks pretty good but i think the projection from a lot of scouts would be better than what you'd get if you were just projecting him purely off those numbers yeah uh you know six four man i thought he was t- I, he really struck me as bigger than that but uh, you know, with the taller guys, that, that was the thing with Jason Worth was a little bit of a late blooming because um, kind of getting his limbs in the right place at the right time to tap into that power, uh, which he didn't have great uh, power numbers in the minor leagues and uh, reduce the strikeout rate. Um, but um, I don't know if I'm crazy on this Worth comparison. I don't even know if they... Uh, Worth was a lefty, right? No, Worth was a righty. But uh, I could see... Yeah, I could see a similar career, actually, to Jason Worth. Um, But Jason Worth took a little bit uh, to get going. Uh, Didn't really uh, have a full season until 2009 when he was already 30. So um, if he is uh, Jason Worthian and he gets going earlier, then uh, that could be a really good career because Worth had 229 homers and 132 stolen bases. Uh, and was 20% better than the average with the stick over his career. So really underrated guy. Yeah, well, I think with Worth, people got a little wrapped up in the big contract and him maybe not performing at the end of that, but you could be a good player before, you could be a good player at the beginning and still be a good player overall, even if you don't meet elevated expectations. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, you know, we had some more debuts. We have a, a career debut and a season debut to break down. Let's start with Josiah Gray. The results overall weren't great in terms of the ratios, uh, but Gray did I think show an ability to miss some bats, 7Ks in four innings, pitching behind an opener, scattered four runs on four hits, only walked one. I think the question for a lot of people out there, if they haven't already emailed in, is how good was the stuff and command from Josiah Gray in his first attempt to deal with big league hitters? Very good. Very good. Uh, There's always a chance for regression. Uh, Shane McClanahan and Alec Manoa have had uh, they debuted with uh, better stuff, amazing stuff, and then regressed off of that. Um, but uh, with this, I at least see uh, a four-seam fastball that uh, has a one-on-one stuff plus 106 if you compare it to other four-seam fastballs. So I would say even if that regresses, that should be at least be an average four-seam fastball. And then uh, curveball and slider combination that were both uh, comfortably above average. Uh, even better, the location plus on all three of those pitches was outstanding. Um, and when I was watching him, I thought he did a really good job of living at the top of the zone with the four-seam fastball and not uh, not sort of... You, if you watch Dylan Cease, you'll see uh, living at the top of the zone with the four-seam fastball, uh, but that also means like sometimes two feet above the top of the zone or whatever. Like It's very scattershot up there. Uh, Gray was just dotting that that the, the upper um, edge of the, the K-zone box. Um, so there was enough there. I don't get command plus numbers that quickly. They usually have to run through them uh, a day or two after. Um, but, uh, I would assume that gray showed a great command plus because, um, it was, uh, it was pretty impressive to watch his forcing command at the top of the zone. If you've got that and you start dropping the breaking balls in off of that, uh, it can be really effective. So I would say, uh, that I'm like all thumbs up. I guess the only question for me is, um, what happens in that Dodgers rotation around the deadline? You've got, well, you've got Bueller, Urias, and Kershaw are in for sure. Uh, Gonsolin and Price probably have to, what, sort of prove that they should remain in? Yeah, I mean, I think with Gonsolin, he hasn't been as crisp as he was previously coming off the shoulder injury. So there are some questions about how effective he's going to be trying to get deep into starts. I think he's gone five innings just one time this season. A lot of threes and fours in that game log right now. And David Price, they're just starting to increase his pitch count now. It's kind of like they need at least one of those guys plus Gray currently just to keep things afloat because of the Kershaw injury. Obviously, Bauer's on administrative leave amidst sexual assault allegations. So who knows what's going on there. If I was running the Dodgers right now, I would combine Gonsolin and Gray, I think, because... Um, or, or I guess just maybe just figure it out with the two of the three, um, have, have it so that, uh, Gonsolin's day shows up, um, uh, like maybe like Gonsolin pitches either the price day or the, uh, the gray day, which means it's awkward to do this, but not be an opener, be a follower, um, and have Gray and Price start those days, and then Gonsolin jumps in when the game is close, but you just don't like what you see, or Price just hasn't can't go past the third yet, or or Gray has loaded the bases, but you're still winning, that sort of deal. Then you bring Gonsolin in. But I think Gonsolin is kind of a major win from Command Plus, because even when he was doing so well in those first two attempts at the league, Command Plus said he had reliever-like command, um, and I think uh, we're seeing that was definitely the case in the postseason last year, and it's definitely the case right now. So I think long term he may be a reliever, which means um, either 
use him as that sort of mid-inning follower uh, with lots of innings type guy, or put him in a trade for a starter. I think you would rather hold on to Gray and trade Gonsolin. Um, And I think Gonsolin's probably going to be valued fairly well by other teams uh, who could uh, kind of ride some bumps when it comes to uh, making him a starter. I would agree with that. And I think they could try and get a, a more established like, rental option for the rotation. Um, and if it costs you somebody that you think is a reliever in the future anyway, um, then maybe it's it's worth it. So I, I would say either way, though, um, Gray is, I would consider him kind of a six starter going forward in terms of innings. So I don't know if I'd go super hard on acquiring him if uh, I'm not sure how many innings he's going to give me. Yeah, we've seen this pattern from the Dodgers before, and I think he's that extra guy right now who could be shuttled back and forth between the rotation and bullpen for a lot of factors that are quite simply out of his control. And has options, so he can go down and Mm -hmm. remain a starter. I think he will kind of remain a starter. The question is, will he do it in the big leagues or the the, the little leagues? (laughs) It's not the little leagues. (laughs) The little leagues. (laughs) The minor leagues. Sorry. Yeah, the little leagues. Uh, that's probably yeah. That's probably not going to be the new name of the minor leagues in the long <laughs> run. Uh, there were a couple of questions about Tuki Toussaint and his season debut. Of course, he's been up and down for parts of three seasons now with Atlanta, but he pitched really well against the Padres, at least in terms of the results. Six and two thirds innings of one run ball, five Ks, two walks, three hits. Picked up the win uh, on Tuesday. And I think the thing that was most surprising is that, you know, the last couple starts he'd made at AAA were also good six-inning starts as well. This is a guy who's struggled with control really at every turn as a big leaguer. He's had some problems keeping the ball in the ballpark, but not the most extreme home run rate overall when you look at the total body of work, just particularly bad in the shortened season with seven homers in 24 to third innings. So just curious if you got to look at some of the, the underlying numbers with Tuki Toussaint yet. Uh, guess which of his pitches stuff plus likes the most i already looked it up so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna look like a <laughs> genius for, for knowing well i was surprised it is the split finger i wouldn't a have guessed one, that prior to seeing 145 it. stuff plus on the split finger which is something that he sort of has taken on later in his career he's always was more of a curveball fastball guy looking for that second third pitch type thing um and so that makes me more hopeful about his future because between the split finger and the curveball, he's got two pitches that are at least 20% better than league average by stuff. Um, what, and, and the other thing that makes me hopeful is his command plus last year was uh, 96, which is a vast improvement over the sort of 83s and 84s and 85s he put up uh, in previous seasons. So... Those are the good things. <laughs> and now for the concerns. Now for the concerns. His sinker has a 76 stuff plus and his four seam has a 66 stuff plus. They don't get a whole lot better when you just compare them to sinkers and four seams anyway. So, it, you know, if he kind of concentrated on the sinker, which has an 85 stuff plus compared to other sinkers, maybe he could make it work. But his location plus, which is not quite command plus, but it's like, you know, what locations do you throw them to are also below average on those fastballs. So I think, and I just don't think he has good enough command on the curveball. and nobody other than Kevin Gossman has good enough command on the split finger to kind of use that to get, to get called strikes. So I think he ran into an aggressive uh, Padres team, which is, we kind of go back to that swing rate idea. Um, you, you, you get an aggressive team and then um, your command looks like good enough and you look great for that night. Uh, and then you run into a patient team uh, that just makes you look awful. Um, and I, I'm not betting hardcore on Tuki. I love him as a person, though. He's such a nice person. And, uh, you know, he's one of those guys who calls you sir in the interview and stuff. And uh, just, uh, just a really nice person and I'm rooting for him. And if he does uh, do it, he's going to outstuff his command problems. Uh, but there are some command and fastball issues there. 
Yeah, it seems like he'd have to throw that splitter a lot more than he did on Tuesday if he's going to exceed expectations. So are we drawing the line at maybe 15-teamers with good matchups, being kind of careful with him in those formats and mostly focusing on him in NL-only leagues and maybe in some deep dynasty leagues as a possible stash for the future? I would like to see something here real quick. I'm looking at uh, team batting stance just to sort of check my my math here on... um, on where the Padres are in terms of swing percentage. Well, uh, they are last in the big leagues. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. How are you going to be careful with him, dude? How are you going to be careful with him? What's his next matchup, most likely? Yeah, that's that's kind of a key here. He should go. I don't have an off day on Thursday. I'll pull up the grid here, it looks like. He goes Sunday at Philly. So we'll get to see him again before Fab runs in a lot of leagues. And then next week, huge. home against the Brewers would be his Because at Phillies, I would not want to start him. Yeah. And then and you say home against the Brewers. You know, Atlanta is uh, one of the most hitting-friendly parts in the big league. So home against the Brewers. Brewers have not been scoring a lot. Uh, what are the Brewers in terms of play discipline? Uh, they are also very patient. Um, if he does fine against the Phillies in Philadelphia, I would increase my fab because then I think I might start him against Milwaukee at home. All right, so you got to see something good Sunday to be a little more aggressive, but otherwise playing a little safe with Tukey. And I think the one of the questions that came in about Tukey, there was more than one, pointed to the scouting grades on his Fangraphs page, right? 60-grade fastball, 65-grade curveball, 55 changeup with a future 60-grade, and then a 50-55 cutter. I mean, that's four average or better pitches if, if well, the scouting grades come up. But right, he, now. right, so he's, he's lost one. What was the one, command grade? 40-45. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So... I think that that points more toward long-term reliever than successful starter. I had uh, a piece, man. I got to find this, but uh, I'll try to find the piece while I'm talking about it. But there was a piece that was shared, I think, by Razball um, going back. And um, I'm going to try and find it. But um, he was talking about uh, it was a football thing. Um, but... The idea was that um, floor, like, we should be drafting for ceiling. And um, it it was more nuanced than that. But the idea was that at least once you pass a few rounds, it's very obvious that um, because the replacement level is higher in fantasy leagues, almost every single fantasy league than in the real in real baseball you should be drafting for ceiling because if they don't hit the ceiling then you're going to replace them with waiver wire you know and maybe this is more true in football but i think it's true in baseball too um and i think it's it kind of reminds me of that conversation we're having about pitching like how do you spot future aces and i i don't want to seem like we were being wishy-washy about that and like saying it could be anything but that's the point about drafting for ceiling is that if there there's if they do anything at elite level, then they that that it's like that max exit velo thing, right? If they do anything as a pitcher at an elite level, that describes their possible opportunities, right? So if any if if Cole Irvin has the same command plus as Ryu, which he does, you know, then he could be Hunjin Ryu. Right. Now in terms of projected outcomes and what's most likely, it's most likely that Cole Irvin is not Dungeon Ryu, right? <laughs> like, Correct. Uh, uh, and we've we've anointed other players, uh, future Dungeon Ryu's in the past, and it hasn't worked out and whatever. But the point is, uh, if the acquisition cost is low, and that's what probably I think Cole Irvin won't even cost that much next year because people will be like, I don't believe it, or at least I don't believe it on that level. Um, then there becomes a point where he becomes worthwhile just in case he hits that. Now, of course, that math is a little bit different if it's an AL only, blah, 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 blah. But uh, in any case, uh, these two things kind of mesh for me where I'm like, you know what? Uh, if you're talking about spending a buck on Tukey and putting him on your bench, um, then I'm all for it. 
because the possible outcomes for him are pretty good. You know, that there is stuff here. There's there's stuff to like. You know, there's there are elite pitches in his arsenal. Um on some, I don't think if you're talking about spending twenty dollars in FAP on, on Tuki, uh, then I'm out because I think in some these flaws will get to him. Right. It's more likely that the flaws hold him back than the ceiling is reached because of the things he does really well based on the balance of what happens but there's enough that he does well there are circumstances where it makes sense to take that chance like he he is not absent upside to, to use a word that i don't use very often he actually has it, it there there's projectable growth in that profile that you can get excited about especially in deeper leagues i don't think he's if you're in a 10 team keeper or dynasty league or a keep seven keep eight keep 10 sort of league Long-term appeal in Tukey is minimal right now, right? But a, a deep dynasty, you talk about Devil's Rejects all the time, right? That's a 24-team league. It's huge. Yeah, I wish I'd, I wish I'd picked him up in that. I would love to right. have him on the bench right now. I have Thomas Hatch on my bench. I mean, you know, one of these guys is going to... That's. I just have a varied... I just also wanted to point out that I have a varied approach to picking up sleepers because, um, you know, Thomas Hatch and and and, and uh, Tukey Toussaint are not the same thing. <laughs> but uh, you know you don't want to do the same thing over and over again yeah plenty of ways to get there which is why we tried to outline a few different paths on that episode on monday and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn's varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply let's get to a few of the questions that came in for today's episode first email came from adam he writes brandon lau is a fun player 152 wrc plus against righties and a 36 wrc plus at the time of this email against lefties in 2021 three to four war players that hit 200 are a special breed lau's splits maybe want to look at jesse winker's splits 180 to 50 by the way and these questions also apply to him to an extent Number one, when do splits against righties and lefties stabilize? Lau is all over the place against lefties through his career. It is up and down year over year. Uh, where should we expect him to end up? Are pitchers doing something differently this year that's leading to the 40% strikeout rate against lefties? We'll start with this question first. We've seen this from Lau before. I think it was two years ago, 2019. The K rate was just through the roof high against lefties, and he looked like he was only going to play against righties, and that was going to significantly cut into his playing time, especially on a raised team that is so good at mixing and matching and having platoons put together. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you just basically want to follow what the team is doing uh, because that'll tell you more uh, than trying to to kind of regress these platoon splits. But, um, you know, uh, here it is. According to the book, uh, we regressed lefties' platoon skills against 1,000 plate appearances against le- left uh, L- LHP of league average splits and 2,200 plate appearances against le- uh, righties at 2,200 plate appearances against lefties. That means when hitters have less than 1,000 or 2,200 plate play- appearances against lefties, we estimate their platoon skill to be closer to league average than their observed platoon of performance. So basically... Uh, for a lefty facing a lefty, you need a thousand plate appearances, and for a righty facing a lefty, you need twenty two hundred. It's like they never really become relevant, but that's the that's the conclusion we come to in the past, right? It's like you just never, you never. That's the can, thing that Derek Hardy says. There is no such thing as a lefty crusher, right? Yeah, like James McCann and I think Kike Hernandez. There's some guys, especially if you're in the DFS Twitter space at all, and you're loading up. 
those lefty mashers, you're not but, actually getting the advantage that you think you're getting based on the numbers. But that, that but, something but, about that seems incomplete to me. Here's what's incomplete about it. They're regressing against league average. Righties do better against lefties in league average. So there is such a thing as a lefty crusher. It's just all righties. You know what I mean? Like until you have twenty two hundred plate appearances, it's it's hard to say that like this guy or oh, this guy, like Kike, he kills lefties. I don't even think he has twenty two hundred plate appearances against lefties. Well, no, and I think then you start to run to the same problem that we've talked about in in other types of, of matchups or splits is the players change over time. You're not the same player for the first half of that sample as you were for the second half like everything everything could be totally different let me see here uh what yeah yeah i mean yeah uh, yeah like uh even adding up uh that's why it takes so much it was because you're adding up plate appearances over a player's career he has enrique hernandez has 1000 plate appearances against lefties and so what we're saying here is he's got an observed uh, 120 WRC plus against lefties and 84 against righties. That's a huge split. We're saying that uh, even though we have a thousand plate appearances, you got to take another thousand plate appearances of league average uh, and put it on top of that to estimate his to estimate his true uh, split. So since he's doing since he's about halfway through that, uh, we can actually kind of uh, do this math a little bit in our head. Let's see here. Um, he, this is a piece I'm reading from Matt Clausen, estimating hitter platoon skill on Fangraphs, um, and so the average uh, woba split. Let's see here if we have a righty. The average woba split is six point one percent of a difference, um, and his is forty. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Actually, it's supposed to be Woba. So 349 versus 294. His is 100. Um, so you would take 50% of 100 in Woba difference or 50% of a 40. Uh, 40. Let's do the 6% because it's, that, that still makes sense. So you got a, 40 per, a 36 observed. You take 50% of that and you take 50% of 6%, which is the league average, and you hit them together. That's 42 divided by 1, 21. So you're expected, uh, you're expect you would expect the the split between his lefty and righty production to be 21 percent rather than nearly 40 percent that it is now. Is that I mean was that some easy enough math? I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry if I uh, broke anybody's brain, but uh, you would expect basically Enrique Hernandez to do well against lefties, uh, but also to do about half as well <laughs> against lefties as he has uh, going forward until you get that sort of uh, even more information going forward. So there are uh, there are lefty mashers. They are right-handed hitters, um, and that's something that Derek Hardy says all the time. So it's a it, it's a there is some nuance to it. Like yes, right-handers do do better against lefties. And so if you are a DFS player and you do use righties against lefties more often, then that's a good that's a good plan. It's just not, you know, it's not that Enrique Hernandez has, probably has like this immense skill beyond that right and then the problem would be that in a tournament scenario if everyone believes that enrique hernandez or a large portion of the field believes enrique hernandez has that skill and therefore he is more heavily utilized more heavily Play, rostered hey, then you don't want pay for him, then yeah. you don't necessarily want to use him depending on what you're trying to do if you're trying to get leverage in dfs then that matters and if you're we're talking about season-long daily moves leagues too you're, you're not getting as much of a lift from him as you probably think you are but you're still getting enough of a lift where it makes sense to use him in in spots like that uh, there's a related question can you quantify the value of an everyday player like Ozzy Albies versus a player like Lau, whose weekly output fluctuates with the handedness of opposing starters? Do the numbers say to start Lau against six righties or Ozzy Albies against six random pitchers in a given week? How often does a team generally face six righties in a week per season? And where would I be able to find that out? Um, working backwards, I don't know if anyone's tracking schedules week over week split by handedness like that kind of seems like a thing someone maybe could do is someone doing it who's doing it a ball 
They're doing it? That's awesome. Yeah, they have a pretty cool tool that I've been using this year um, called the Streaminator. And uh, it's usually used, I think, for by uh, people to look at pitchers because they'll project a pitcher's performance based on their schedule in the upcoming week. Um, and that's a really good way to sort of uh, look at, oh, this, this sort of icky two-start pitcher or this better one-start pitcher, uh, which is exactly the same question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have a hitter version where um, they kind of look it goes through the schedule and it looks at handedness and it looks at how many games they have and what you would project. So, um, and what's useful about this, uh, and I and I I'm, I'm only sort of speaking in tones like this about it because it's a it's a pay thing. You got to pay for it. Um, but um, the thing that's cool about it is that's the way to do it. It's just the way to do it because. Well, all the stuff I'm talking about is going to be hard for you to do in your head. Like, because let's talk about Brandon Lau, right? Like, okay, so Brandon Lau has an observed uh, 40 to, uh, 40% uh, uh, WRC plus split between righties and lefties, right? Um, well, you'd have to regress that, you know, because he only has um, 270 career playing appearances against lefties. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, you'd have to do a bunch of math there, uh, to get him to that that kind of, uh, that 1000 plate appearance level. So you have to do, okay, one times this split versus the stuff I just did. Right. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to do that for all the players on your roster, (laughs) uh, where you're like, okay, all right. So Lau is probably six times, uh, a 115 WRC plus, and then once he gets that one lefty, so he's really probably like a 108 WRC plus, and we got this other guy. You know? So uh, it's just a lot better if you like set up a system that does all that for you. Uh, does Weekly the projections are your friends. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's definitely uh, a tool that I can get behind that I've been using and has been really useful for NFPC this year. Uh, you know, if I, if I disagree, at least it helps group. It's almost like, you know, when you look at wins about replacement, okay, you can tell me that you don't believe this guy's wins about replacement. That's fine. At least it's probably somewhere close. Like, let's say you just don't believe this guy's a three-win player and he's more of a two-win player and he's at like 2.8. Okay, all right, so you, you group him with the two-win guys, right? When you're looking, when someone projects it and it says, okay, this pitcher is in the top 50 and this pitcher is at 150, then I, I can stop my brain from being like, but I really like the 150 guy. <laughs> but if the, the, the weekly streaming error says, oh, these guys, these guys are both top 75 guys, then I can say, all right, now I'm going to use my gut or my personal stats or whatever I'm looking at uh, to then uh, parse it further and be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this guy over that guy because even though the streaming error says 175 and 171, like, you know, at least it grouped it for me and now I can make decisions on top of that. Just thinking about this, this Lau versus Albies thing though, because that's, that's a possible thing in a shallow league. You could definitely run into a problem like that. Like how would you decide between them or how would you determine who's more valuable going into the week with their respective matchups? Like how do you, if if you don't have access to those tools, do you look at the matchups and say, in the upcoming week, for example, or this week, I think it's two lefties that the Rays have in seven games, right? Is that enough to sit Lau down? Five out of seven matchups against righties in a week versus if, if Albies plays the same number of games and you know we the handedness varies, it doesn't matter as much. He switch hits, so I guess he's a kind of a, a variable guy. But how do you how do you weigh that? Well, the one thing that's a little different about Albies is that uh, he's got uh, a platoon split that's bigger than you'd expect from. Um, from a switch hitter and he's discussed his problems against righties in the past. Uh, his power is much lower. His, uh, his swing mechanics are a little different. He's got this, and I don't actually know how to regress, uh, platoon hitters, <laughs> platoon splits. I mean, sw- switch hitters, platoon splits. Uh, but he's got an observed, uh, 150 WRC plus against lefties and 96 against righties. So I think if it was the both the case where both of these guys were facing five righties, I might take Lau. Yeah, uh, it's uh, even trickier because of Albies' splits themselves, though, too. So 
a great question and one that I think people, a lot of us are, are too comfortable just looking at the schedule, eyeballing it, counting the games, and just kind of pushing ahead when there is a way to be more data-driven with that decision-making. And I think the the benefits are, are something that Eno has already talked about, but I think people that use information to their advantage in this situation are getting a leg up that a lot of people in leagues simply are not getting. I, had- I kind of prefer daily leagues for this because on the daily league, then you just choose, you only have a little bit of math to do, right? You're just, you're looking at how this player will do against that player. And then it's a little bit easier because you can be like, oh, Winker's facing a lefty today and I've got this guy on my bench facing a righty, you know, I'll, you know, I'm going to switch this out. Uh, but on a weekly level, you have to do that seven times in one go. The only problem is uh, with daily leagues, you have to do the work every day. Piles up if you start playing in 10 leagues. It ends up being quite a bit of shuffling around. But I, I do think if I played in fewer leagues, if I only played in one league, I might actually prefer a daily league for, yeah. for all of these reasons. Uh, one more question to get to. And thank you for that question, by the way, Adam. This one comes from Mark. Mark writes, I'm in a 12-team dynasty league that allows owners to keep 25 players a year, not counting minor league slots, and you can keep them forever. I'm in the middle of a competitive window where my team should be one of the best for at least the next couple of seasons, and I have a lot of depth, more quality players than I could keep for next year. My question is this. In this scenario, would you hold all of these quality players as insurance for your team to be better able to endure injuries or trade away some of the better first guy off the bench kinds of players to maximize their value before losing them in the off season. Thanks, Mark. What do you think here? This is tricky because I, in a 12 team dynasty league, my argument would be that replacement level on the wire is still a little bit higher, even with all those players held over from year to year, the wire is not completely a complete wasteland. So you can probably find guys who are playing in a league like that. And if you can find guys who are playing to replace guys you lose, ideally you can trade some of that unkeepable depth now while you still have some leverage. The closer you get to the deadline, the later in the season it gets, the more the other teams in your league know, well, Mark's got too many keepers. There's no way he's keeping all these guys, so I'm not going to give him anything good. So I do think consolidating while you can is a good strategy. Upgrading some of your active spots with some of that depth Definitely works in a league of this size. You said it was a 12-teamer? 12-teamer, yep. Yeah, I've got a 12-team dynasty situation where I picked up Joey Votto and Willie Adamas um, off the wire this year, and they're now starting for me. Um, And that's because of of myriad injuries. So I think that the replacement level is pretty high. I mean, if you can get Votto Votto and Adamas-type players off the wire, then... I think you're covered in terms of injury, and I would definitely try to consolidate. The only thing I would say is that everybody in these leagues is trying to consolidate, and everybody is coming at you with the two and three for ones, and it really annoys almost everybody to get a two and three for one. So I would say um, either um, at least, at the very least, make it a two or three for three uh, where you're showing them who they would drop and who where the upgrades would be. Um, um, and if that doesn't work, if they still see you coming a mile away, uh, or if they just don't want to let you consolidate, then consider trading for picks. Yeah, that could work for sure. Trade for picks, trade for prospects, trade for things that you can keep because, uh, when they're sitting on your, on your bench, they're not, they're not, they're not giving you value really. Just to put this into context, some of the final hitters that Mark is referring to, Mike Yastrzemski, Jeff McNeil, CJ Crone, Joey Wendell, I mean, for the most part, those are guys that in a 12-team keep 25 scenario, they're they're all going to be kept other than maybe Wendell for pitchers, Sonny Gray, Edbert Alzali. Those guys and, are keepers too. And in, in this case, what I would do with the specific names is keep Wendell because Wendell is a one-man replacement level. I mean, he has like four or five different positions he can play at. It might be tempting to keep McNeil, uh, and maybe maybe that's the case, but uh, somebody might want to buy low on McNeil. And you don't really want to play him through whatever troubles he's got. Plus, he's old, he has a bad reach rate, um, and uh, he may not have the bounce back level that people are expecting from him. So I would trade McNeil and Crone uh, to somebody... Uh, Yaz, as a lefty hitter that sometimes plays in Colorado and plays on the road, I think 
would be a fine bench pairing with Joey Wendell. If you had those two on your on your bench afterwards, uh, you'd be covered for all of your positions. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I think Wendell is a shortstop in most leagues, so uh, you'd be covered for almost all your positions with two guys, and then you'd have another roster spot or two to go play with uh, on the wire, which I love in those leagues. So anytime I can pull something like that, I would. So uh, I think a Crone McNeil package to someone lower uh, uh, for picks or for just a win now piece for a reliever for a starter that makes sure you win this year. Um, I think that would be fine. I would say in a deeper league, the deeper you go, the more likely I would be to hold more of that depth just because the replacement level becomes worse. so difficult, right? You just, you're not finding quality on the wire, but in this situation, especially, which I think is a more common dynasty league situation, try to make those moves. Hopefully that helps some people out there and good luck, Mark, if you're able to find some deals that actually work for you. Uh, before we go, just a heads up, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for just three ninety nine a month at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Gets you all the stuff that Eno writes, everything that I write, all of the fantasy football stuff too. If you happen to play fantasy football, the draft kit just launched last week. So lots of good stuff rolling out in there. And of course, all the coverage heading into the MLB trade deadline one week from Friday on Twitter. He's at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. You can always drop us a line, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.